Welcome to the Tori Says Show. So I started off late today. I was um, I was actually multitasking. I had a few conversations. Well, yeah, one very long conversation. And um, I'm really excited about today's show. It's the water show. And I told you last week we were going to talk about it. Um, it's quite interesting how, how time goes. What? Okay. Can you guys hear me now? What happened there? It's the 26th of March, 2021. There we go. And um, it seems that uh, as uh, time is flying in March, it's going out with quite a stir, crazy stir. We're seeing that the Japanese are sending ships to help us. But in what way are they helping the world? I don't know. I mean, do you unload a ship? Gas prices are going to go skyrocketing if the ships need to go all the way around Africa. It's a very long journey. Costs a lot of money, too. In fact, today I thought I would um, share with you some, you know, clips of someone who on the yacht decided that they wanted to cross the Atlantic from Africa. And it took them days on a yacht where they travel way faster than 20 to 30 kilometers per hour, right? Then a cargo ship took them over five days to get to Namibia, right? As a first port of call from South Africa to then hop over to St. Helena's, which is a random Island in the middle of nowhere, kind of like Hawaii. But this one looks like it's a, uh, Earthly created rock prison, it, totally. And uh, then from there, they went on to go to South America. It's one of the most bizarre and vague journeys that I have ever seen. And the person documents it on YouTube. Um, I have the beholder and all. But I was just thinking like, whoa. You know, Japanese said that they were going to send ships to help us. <laughs> I don't know. This kind of helps if the world were to see cargo being unloaded. But it kind of doesn't help because as they run up the prices of food, water, and gas, people are going to pay for it. So I guess... You take it as is. But you know what the funny thing is? This is like so hilarious, right? As that nice ship that um, entered into the Suez, a nice American ship parked in the back of it, right? At the opening of that canal. It's just parked. It's the first one parked. And the first one parked on the exit side is a Russian ship. You would think they were like, yeah, I think you need to stay in there, Evergreen. I don't think you need to move. So I guess, you know, getting stuck in the canal would make more sense. 
Now, the question is, how does a ship of that size get stuck? I mean, you've got to be a really bad driver, right? To get it stuck like that. Like, were you going in reverse? Were you trying to do wheelies? Like, like what were you doing to get it in that? Let me guess. Huh? Did someone hack your system? And then it was fine because it was just a glitch. And then as you went to the most messed up part of the canal, it decided to take control again and get you to go in circles and stuff. And I think it's important that we watch this really dope video. Now, for those of you that are um, listening, I'm going to say it is a very nice video. It is a very nice video. You will hear audio, but you will be able to envision in your eyes exactly what shape of path this boat created totally accidentally. (laughs) You know, (laughs) while it got stuck, which is so comical. It is so, it's like, I, you know, who did this? Whoever did this needs to be hugged. Because it was one of the most hilarious things. Like the memes that this ship has given us has lifted our hearts this week, uh, which was so necessary. It completely lifted our hearts. It was the the most laughing I've done except for what my daughter Googled when I asked her a question. That's another story. I'll probably keep it to the end because it's actually quite embarrassing. Um, But it's funny, so why not share? You know, we should laugh and in times uh, like this. So I'm going to get this video up for you guys. Um, give me a second. I need to pause this. Colonel, you better take a look at this radar. Hold on. What is it, son? I don't know, sir. It doesn't want to pause for me. Hold on a second. I think I'm just going to do it because, you know, I had some issues. Okay. Let's see if that works. No. Okay, there we go. Colonel. Now I can pause it. All right, you guys ready for this? Okay, are you kidding? Okay. There we go. And boom. And boom. And I got it. That's what's up. See? Computers, they all want to be finicky with you, but... All right, you guys ready? This is like super awesome. Let's go. Colonel, you better take a look at this radar. What is it, son? I don't know, sir. But it looks like a giant dick. Yeah. Take a look out of starboard. Oh, my God. It looks like a huge... Pecker! Oh, where? Wait. That's not a word. Pecker, it looks like someone's... Private! We have reports of an unidentified flying object. It is a long, smooth shaft, complete with two balls. What is that? That looks just like an enormous... Wang, pay attention. I was distracted by that enormous flying... Willie. Yeah. What's that? Well, it looks like a giant... Johnson. Yes, sir. Get on the horn to British intelligence and let them know about this.
Yeah, because we need to tell British intelligence anything. They fuck shit up anyway. Excuse me. All right. We don't want to tell them anything. Forget the GCHQ. That was hilarious. You have to admit. That was hilarious. And the memes just keep coming in, coming in. You know that part when, uh, with, it was it uh, Austin Powers, right? Where he's like in this tunnel and he's backing up some, was it Austin Powers? Yeah, where he was backing up that thing in the tunnel. They've just superimposed an image of the evergreen. Now that was funny too. It, it's, it's a joke, but you have to think about it. Damn, that's one crazy, crazy, crazy shape that, that happened twice, not once, twice. And this ship has been around for a while. I, I, I actually was talking about cargo ships and containers back in 2019. But, you know, I digress. Uh, uh, will that be it? Is that how they're going to show us? Now, in the meantime, while they show us, Last night I was having a conversation with someone before Patrick. Oh, and it was about, I am so embarrassed to be an American right now. We got schooled by China, right? The Chinese who are forced harvesting organs from prisoners are like, you have no authority to tell us, you know, what to do. Look at your crap. You suck. It's like, this is so embarrassing. This is a national security risk. No one respects America. Nobody does. We have a president that can't tie his shoe. We've got a military that stands behind him. Oh, look, I just got combat general and I'm a woman and it's a big deal. No, we've had them before. And wait, how are you going to take orders from him when he can't tie his shoe? Oh, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. It's a risk to our national security. It's completely embarrassing. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that people are pointing it out too. It's, it's embarrassing. Like who thought it was a good idea to put, you know, to create, you know, this whole white house scenario into weekend at Bernie's. It looks horrible. It looks terrible. And nobody wants to talk about it. We have a weak president, a weak government and a, and a government that's giving everything away. Sounds like a nightmare. It totally fucking is. And you should look at it, stare at it, see it, feel that embarrassment. Maybe that'll empower you to make it stop. Because you can. See, the one thing that I was thinking about this morning was I feel like people believe, you know, let's put it this way. We have two communities right now. We have our physical community, right? And our digital community. And our digital community runs the majority of our life, especially with this control of virus. And they have us all blocked into our homes. Schools are Zoom schools. Meetings are Zoom meetings. Everything's a digital, 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 right? So for some reason, people are following personas, right? And it's like, why are you following anybody? You guys are we're like right now we're having a conversation. Okay. I'm the only one talking, right? But I'm reading your comments. So you're in the conversation. We're having a conversation. We're like, how do we fix this? We share content. We share information. We discuss things together, right? We don't give any credence to any idiot that thinks that they're important more than you. No one is more important than your voice. 
Your voice is what's more important. You are not less important. Why are you so fussed? Social media is not letting me speak. Then fuck social media. Nobody needs social media. Go to your county. They have to hear you. Go to your city officials. They have to hear you. We need to be having discussions where we do things. We need to have discussions and actions. Not sitting there telling you how everything is going to be just fine. Because it is. It is. But you've got to do stuff. And in order to grow, well, you know, so when we're kids, right, we go through growing pains. But because we're so busy, right, as kids playing and doing and, and then we sleep like logs as kids, you don't really feel the growing pains. But in order for our nation to grow up into what it was intended to be, a self-governed nation where people have conversations, right? And everyone is heard, but people are also educated to have that conversation. It's like, how do you talk to somebody? It's like someone coming to me and saying, let's have a conversation about car engines. And I'll be like, I'm going to tell you straight, this conversation is going to be totally one-sided and you're the only one that's going to be doing talking because I don't know jack diddly squat about car engines. But if I learn about car engines, I can sit there and say something and have a conversation, right? We need conversations. We need to be active and we need to stop giving green. Like who made Twitter any authority? You did. Who made Facebook any authority? You did. Who gave Jack Posobiec a megaphone to be your representative? You did. Who put Pelosi in the house? You did. Who made whatever person in the news your source of information. You did. Now, maybe you didn't do it directly, but you didn't do anything to stop it. And, you know, your taxes are paying for it. So in a way, you kind of are. Sucks. Sucks. But it's true. And who elected most of these people? (laughs) The people. Why? Because they had no idea what conversation they were getting in when they got this ballot. I'm sure all of you can admit to when you get your ballot, you're like, wait, what kind of measure is this? I never even heard of that. Who's that judge? (laughs) Um, Guess I'm not voting for them. Doesn't matter. They're running unopposed, so they're still going to win, right? That's the point. We need to be having conversations. This is how we solve problems, by having conversations, right? And by keeping it clean, right? We don't need the left to tell us anything. We don't need the right to tell us anything, right? I had someone creep up on my Twitch who I've never heard of, never seen. I heard that last night you raided my channel and you had racist comments on my thing. I was like, uh, I don't raid at night and um, I don't know who the fuck you are. So there. So, <laughs> right? So there's no conversation there, right, with that person because I was called a racist and I was accused of something that I you know, I may have or may not have done, right? This was in like my little whispers, right? And I was just like, what the heck is going on here? But we're not having a conversation. She could have said, hey, did you by any chance read me? I mean, that could have been like, you know, one approach, right? And then the response would be like, uh, no, I don't know who you are. Oh, okay, thanks. End of conversation. What she sent to me wasn't a conversation. It was an accusation. Kind of like, When the media asks questions, now they're asking questions to the Biden administration. 
But when they were asking questions to the Trump administration, they were accusation statements that were pushed as questions, which means I was just waiting for a response to see how pissed you'd be. So that way you could give me some, you know, uh, feedback, (laughs) right? The world is insane. We have to agree. There's no source of information that can be handed to you in a concise manner, right? Because it's always going to be biased. I was speaking to some reporters today from a leftist organization. Mind you, that organization has also done a hit piece on me. What? And, you know, as we had the conversation, I saw they had information that went my, my, you know, lights in my head went, whoa, damn, that's a connection. But you know what I said to them? You know what's important that they need to showcase? They need to showcase this without a lens. And I said, damn, you know, it's going to be messed up. Because if you do write this report, it's going to show that Trump was screwed over. I don't think your publication wants to show that Trump (laughs) was plotted against. Because, you know, you guys don't do that. Well, if it's the truth, I was like, stop. You guys know how to to move the, the truth over, right? So, um, but it was a good conversation, even though I felt I was doing most of the talking because they wanted information. Um, they seemed to be genuine, uh, genuine about where they were going. The only concern that I had was that they would, you know, throw in uh, innocent people into it, um, which shouldn't, because even innocent people, um, you know, kind of uh, get carried away because they're only human. But they seem pretty, pretty middle of the road and they were pleasant, right? But again, it's like, come on, you know, I really hope you put back some integrity into journalism because this is a very big story and it's very important that it's told correctly. And I'm glad that they reached out Um, and they're reaching out to a lot of people. Uh, It's, you know, and in the end, I told them, you know, it sucks. It's like everybody knows that having Biden in office is a danger to our nation. It is a clear cut danger. The Chinese were talking down to us. There are wars happening. There's, you know, the border crisis exists, but, you know, no one's going to pay attention. Why do they keep thumping it? Oh, we're going to show the leftists that Biden and Harris did this. Nobody gives a crap. You know why? Because when they were putting pictures from 2014 saying that was Trump's, you know, oh, look, he has them in cages. Those were Obama's. They don't care. Don't you get it? They never cared about the kids at the border. They never cared. The, the leftist corporate controlled media never cared. Never They don't care that they're in cages. They don't care that the kids are undocumented. They don't care that that kid can disappear and no one would be any wiser. They don't care. So why are we spending so much time and energy focusing your attention on things that the left doesn't care? Oh, you're going to share it on social media? It's going to be fact-checked and silenced. You think they're going to see your post? Nobody cares. So why is the right pushing you to the borders, the left pushing you to fear porn, and no one's talking about shit that's happening? It's like 
when you step back and see it, you're giving them that power by talking about it. Do you remember the cages back in 2017? Oh, with me. So racist. And he has cages and it's like they're using pictures from 2014. Nobody cared. When you see exposés inside and leaked documents of the border, it's like, why? Who is advising anyone, right, that people actually on the left care about this? We already know the people on the right know the importance and the necessity of a border. The people of Texas and Arizona and New Mexico and California that live there know the need for that border. They already know it. The people that they are pandering to already know it. So why are they spending so much time on that as opposed to, hey, another Oath Keeper was rolled up simply for being security there. No evidence of doing anything. And he's been rolled up and held without bail. No problem there. Let's not talk about that, right? Let's not talk about how he's in jail, right? With no evidence of doing anything, except for I was there to do a job and just provide security to people. And the chick that stole the laptop and was attempting to sell it to the Russians is out on bail, right? Let's not talk about that on the right, right? Let's not talk about that. Let's not. No, 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 no. Focus on the border. Look over here. Look over here. Because there's a big wave of migrants coming. No shit. They're coming in from the airports too. How do you think they got the rest of Ebola in? And activate. Oh, it just so happened at the university where they first had the first victim. It just reoccurred. It just spontaneously started again. Just so happened to be at the university where it had spontaneously started too before. And they were all there and identified at the same place. That happens to be the same place where the Weston monkey Ebola virus outbreak from 1984 went and got stored. But those are just you know, conspiracy theories. Yeah, because nobody knew that we had an Ebola outbreak in 1984 because they kept that silent. And you know what? They didn't tell the world that there was an Ebola outbreak in 1984 because guess what? No human died because it turns out only if you have that monkey DNA in you do you get affected by that Ebola virus, which by the way, don't look at that. What? You mean we have monkey cells in the vaccines? Yeah, it's no big deal. It's just going to change a little bit of your DNA, not all of it. But that would make me susceptible to the rest in Ebola strain. Yeah, it probably could, but I don't know. Next thing you know, 44 victims in Ohio, so many victims over here. The university that had the rest in monkey virus <laughs> suddenly had a reoccurring patient. Like, stop. 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 Like I said, and it's unfortunate. Sometimes the, the biggest act of love is to watch your kids suffer to put on their shoes or their clothes, right? You stand by them. You're watching them trip over, putting on their pants or whatever while they're learning to dress themselves. And as your kid's tripping over and learning to dress themselves, you're just watching, making sure they don't get hurt too bad. Maybe a scuff maybe a bump on the head because then they learn and growing pains are called growing pains because it's painful. And unfortunately for many people across this nation, and even many of you that are listening to me right now, 
You won't do anything until you have a boot on your face. And that sucks. That really, really sucks. And the president had um, once put out a tweet that we don't need to look for suffering in order to help. We need to recognize that it's everywhere and help where we can. And the only thing you can do right now with what's coming, and the best is yet to come, but with what's coming is to arm yourself with knowledge, to arm yourself with compassion, and to arm yourself with the ability to trust your own gut. That's all. Trump had um, made that statement in, a long time ago, and there's this um, person, Delise. Actually, she, she paints, and she's a gamer. Did you guys know that? She's, like, so awesome. I don't know her personal, personally, but she does paint, and um, she's quite a, um, a good individual. And she actually put that out on a tweet, and I was like, wow where it shows a little girl trying to lift a cross off of a statue because she wanted to help the statue carry the cross. There is so much suffering right now across the planet and so much more that um, will come that many of us have to understand that um, uh, it's going to get worse. And it's important that it does. I mean, there'll be victories and you will be seeing the light, you know, of, okay, we're almost there. I can see the horizon. I can see it. But it's important um, that we understand that knowledge is what's going to keep you, keep your feet on the ground and your faith is going to keep you standing tall. It's really, really hard to, to put it into an easier format of statement. Now, Greg Kelly nails it. And he asks, who voted for this guy? It's not who voted. You have to think, who endorsed this embarrassment? They know he can't function. They know. Where's the physician reports? I want that physician to come out on a formal report and tell me that that clown is stable. Where is it? Because with that, I'm going to go and file a suit myself and say he needs his license freaking removed because it's bullshit. I can clearly see that he's he doesn't know what he's doing. So he asks, who voted for him? Do you know I've been collecting information for the past couple weeks from people, you know, I live in a blue city, right? And I'm asking people for information, like how they feel. Do you know that almost 90% of the people that I came across that identify as Democrats and Black Lives Matter and white people you know, are devils. Do you know what they say, though? I'm not trying to be funny, yo, but our country was a lot safer with Trump, even though I didn't like him. That's what's up. And that was repeated to me three times while I was being told that I'm white privileged. Right? I was... I had white privilege, but that was the response they gave. That's where we started the conversation. I was like, so you calling me white? How do you know I didn't bleach my face, right? I'm brown. Why are you attacking me? And then they started to get, oh, I'm so sorry. You just, you know. And I was like, no, nah, man, I'm Caucasian, so what's up? 
And they were like, oh, you're cool. It's like, so I'm in line here and you're talking shit to me because I'm right in front of you in line and I just happen to be white and my life shouldn't matter, just yours, right? And then we're having a conversation and we can agree on one thing at least, that our country was safe with Trump. I'm just saying it was, it was a hostile communication because they were upset that I was in in front of them in line. And it's like, so I get here first, I'm in front of you and that's white privilege. Totally confused. So they do that. It's okay. It was, you know, it was, (laughs) was, uh, uh, wow. <laughs> okay, so I went to a government building, right? Got in line and I was standing there on my phone um writing emails. So you know how hilarious the situation was and how the conversation went. <laughs> and I'm standing in line and then, you know, people are angry that they have to go back in line and, you know, you know, I, I think one of them was turning themselves into jail or something. Um, I, I don't remember. And um, I'm just standing there on my phone and, you know, I open my bag up, I get my water, I drink, my mask is off-ish on my face, right? Hold on, let's, why did I leave the ringer on? So my mask is off-ish on my face. They're upset that I'm, you know, there in line. We're going to be late and then you in front of us because you have white privilege. I was like, dude, I was here like 10 minutes before you and that's so rude. You're, I'm offended that you called me white. And then it was like the whole, you know, nah, nah, nah. right? That's the way it happened. So um, that's how the conversation happened. That they, they, The line was taking too long and I was in front of them. So because I was white and I was in front of them, it was white privilege, which made absolutely zero sense because they saw me there before they even entered the room. So this is the way people respond because it works. And I'll tell you why. A few months ago, when I was in um, Maryland, uh, there was a long line at a Chick-fil-A, Right. And so these people were sitting there and she was getting orders from people, but they weren't standing in line. She was, and they're like, you're so white privileged standing in front of me, waiting and getting orders. Nah, nah, nah. She was like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Yeah, that's right. And then they just bully themselves up to the front. And it's like, what the fuck is going on here? Did she like apologize for being white and being in line before them and gave up her spot because she was, I'm so sorry. You're right. I'm embarrassed to be white. It's like, this is not okay. They just use that. And it's like, no, I should use it too. I should be like, I'm fat. Therefore, you should carry me from one side to the other. But it's not my fault you're fat. It doesn't matter. My life matters. Fat lives matter. Carry me from one corner to the other, please. That's what I should do. Oh, you're, you're, you have thin privilege standing in front of me and you're making me with my big ass stand behind you. Move. Carry me to the front or hold me. Because I said so. But it's not my fault that you have junk in the trunk. Doesn't matter. My life matters. And I'm going to shame the crap out of you until you do it. That's what happens. That is exactly what happens. I mean, it sounds ridiculous when you talk about fat lives matter, right? But apparently if we add a color in the front or maybe a, a, um, a species variation, right? <laughs> totally makes sense. Pure insanity. Pure insanity. 
We should start that. Fat Lives Matter. Carry me from one side to the other because I'm too fat to walk. Take me. Roll me there. Fan me too. Gosh, this is how ridiculous society is. This is exactly how ridiculous society is. And if there were enough people to do that, that shit would fly too. Guarantee you. Guarantee you. I mean, right now, you know, we're seeing plus size models everywhere, you know, and it's like, that's not healthy. That's not what we want our kids to look like. You can love yourself, right? You can accept yourself in a larger size. And I can totally tell you just there's research out there that has been hunkered down. But if you actually have 20 to 30 pounds overweight, that's it, right? That's the sweet Goldilocks zone. You actually uh, are more resistant to disease and cancer, just so you know, by the way. So those of you that are 20 to 30 pounds overweight, you're in that sweet spot. It's actually a defense mechanism. So just so you know, because it causes more stress on your body and you have the ability to respond to stress better. So, um, you know, we have all these models, you know, that can't wipe their butt because they can't reach. And we're telling our kids, love yourself like that. No, you shouldn't. I don't love myself like this. Like I don't, I know that, you know, I've got to put in extra work because I'm sick and I, and I can't, but I know I don't like, how are they? No, 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 no. But, you know, if enough of them get around, then their lives matter. And then you'll be shamed for not having junk in the trunk. That's how crazy it is. Society has lost its mind because society is now telling you that this guy is capable of running a nation. (laughs) How did this happen? Whoa, that was bad. A press conference wisely scheduled in the middle of the afternoon on a weekday so nobody would see it. Joe Biden just can't hack it. He can't hack this job. It was bad. It's sick. It's sick. Deciding in some states that you cannot bring water to people standing in line waiting to vote. The Republican voters I know find this despicable. Republican voters. This makes Jim Crow look like Jim Eagle. The great unifier, huh? Joe Biden, just totally distorting something. But this is when Joe is actually at his best, at his clearest. Watch this. I'm going to say something outrageous. I have never been particularly poor at calculating how to get things done in the United States Senate. So the best way to get something done, if you if it holds near and dear to you that you uh, um, like to be able to. Anyway. Uh, we're going to get a lot done. He's particularly poor. Totally legit, right? Totally safe. How safe do you feel? How safe do you feel if Russia says, man, we're going to blow your butt up? He's, what, what is he going to do? Uh, uh, forget about it. LeBron, are you going to talk? Uh, maybe you should talk President Harris. At the job of being president and uh, particularly a poor at... Um, Realizing what's going on. Okay. Um, hang on. Uh, sorry. Oh, segment, Miss Kim. Uh, okay. Um, where am I here? Let me see. Caitlin? Um, let me get here. Okay. Uh, um, Cecilia Vega. Uh, okay. Uh, how about Yamish? 
Okay, hang on a second here. Kristen, uh, Nancy, CBS. That's the easiest part, calling on people, and he's struggling, and he's got this huge stack of notes, and he's reading at times. Remember when Trump was doing this? He'd be like, you, you. It was, it's, it's easy, and he's struggling with what's easy. And by the way, the questions were pretty easy, very easy. They were treating him gently. Got me thinking again about Barack Obama, his former boss, huh? You know, we're still living with a lot of, you know, his legacy. Some of the stuff he did still affecting all of us. Makes sense. Two-term president. One thing he did, he was reluctant to ever use the phrase Islamic terrorism. Didn't say it. Wouldn't say it. Some thought he was in denial that it actually existed. And that's relevant right now. Now, we've had two horrible shootings in recent weeks. We had Boulder this week. Ten victims. An alleged shooter in custody right now. Notice the 10 victims are all believed to be Caucasian. Now, let's go through a little bit about what we know of the shooter, okay? Uh, From his online activity, it's pretty clear he's a Trump hater and he perceived Islamic persecution. It is believed that he's Muslim and originally from Syria. All right. Now, let's talk about the Atlanta shooting last week. We had eight victims, uh, six of them Asian women, a white woman, a white man, an Hispanic man was shot and injured. Okay, let's put those now side by side, Atlanta and Boulder. Now, which one do you think the mainstream media are calling a hate crime? Hmm? Yep, Atlanta. Even though the suspect in custody is saying he had a sex addiction, they're all dismissing that. Law enforcement is saying there's no indication. Oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry. Didn't we say that? Didn't I tweet? I didn't tweet. I telegrammed out Asian hooker lives matter. Oh, but you know, whatever, right? Whatever, right? Because gold spa happened. He was a soy boy that had a sex addiction. You heard him. Sex addiction addiction. Oh, because they were all just spas, right? Right. Nothing had to do with trafficking there. So don't look here. Look at that. He's a white supremacist attacking Asians, but we're not going to talk about the Asians. that are being held in these spas to perform sexual acts. And that's why he shot them down because they probably laughed at his Johnson. Right. We talked about that already. That's the first thing I said when that happened was hashtag Asian hooker lives matter. That should have been it. And I was telling you that they were tying in sex worker lives matter, right? Because they knew, but then they dropped it quick because the media wasn't even going to talk about it. No, 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 no. We're not going to talk about that. This guy is a soy, you know, asexual that likes to have sex with random women and pays them right? That are victims of trafficking and that are forced to perform acts in massage spas. We're not going to talk about that. We're just going to use the color of his face and focus on that. But, you know, we talked about this. It's in the telegram. That's the one thing that I hashtagged out. And that's why Bergie said it's off limits. We shouldn't talk because he has, he loves Asian women, right? He just loves them. You know, he should just live in Asia. So, you know, that's, that's the thing we, uh, you know, talked about it. Media wasn't right. Nobody else was right. They were just talking about, Oh, he just shot up Asians. Now they're going to thump it. Stop media, be accountable for it. Point it out that this soy boy, 
right? That, you know, is non-gender specific, right? Likes to have sex and the women probably laughed at him at the massage parlor and he lit them up and that the woman and the man lit up were probably the pimps or maybe customers or maybe whatever, right? Or maybe the owners of the spas that have them as prisoners to perform sexual acts under the guise of massage, right? But let's not talk about that. Let's talk about his color, not the other guy that shot people up because, you know, we just bombed Syria. ...of a hate crime. Um, media wants to hear none of that, and they certainly don't want to hear hate crime regarding Boulder. Listen to this. When I was watching that news conference and he called it a bad day, and all I could think of was eight people are grieving tonight. It's a guy that had an issue. He blames a race of people for his problem. And then he goes and eliminates what he thinks to eliminate the temptation that he has an issue with. I hope the FBI and ICE are investigating these massage parlors in Atlanta, Georgia, Georgia. Seems to be in the news a lot. Who's headquartered there? That's right, CNN. Oops. A lot of things. What was one of the biggest operations they did during uh, the Trump administration where they saved tons of children? Yeah, it was in Georgia. But we're not going to talk about the fact that he was paying them for sex and that these women are being held against their will to perform these acts. And, you know, he just snapped because, you know, maybe he ran out of money and he needed some more or they laughed at him or whatever. So such a disservice. So disgusting. It's a peculiar amount of empathy for a, a mass shooter. It's humanizing the shooter. Yeah. It's humanizing the shooter once again. Yeah. And well, can I point out that the shooter is a white man who is alive after they knew that he had killed eight people. And he was armed. And he was armed. And they yeah. knew that, too. Yeah. Gail seemed to be upset that they didn't blow the shooter away uh, when they didn't have to. Um, all right. You've seen this before. It's all Trump's fault. It's his rhetoric that uh, set the conditions for hate crimes in America. And remember, no one's saying officially that what happened in Boulder is a hate crime. It's all about Atlanta. Look at this. And again, they say it's all traced back to Trump. Anti-immigrant rhetoric, racist rhetoric has been a hallmark and feature uh, of his campaign, of his presidency. We have talked about the inflammatory rhetoric from President Trump since day one of his campaign. Why do you keep calling this the Chinese virus? Why do you keep using this? A lot of people say it's racist. It's not racist at all, no, not at all. It comes from China. That's why. Words matter. Only if that presents physical harm to the Asian American community. This rhetoric of hate and division leaves no room for voters who see themselves as decent people. Do you use the term the kung flu? My question is, do you kung think flu. that's wrong? Kung flu. And do you think using the term Chinese virus that puts Asian Americans at risk that people no, might target them? Lindsey Graham downplaying the former president's racist rhetoric. The kind of hate that has Asian Americans across this country terrified that they'll be victims of the next explosion of violence. So I asked some folks and we all worked on this together. Let's find the worst rhetoric, all this hateful rhetoric that President Trump allegedly used against Asians. Where is us controversial stuff that they're all talking about? Um, this is what we found. Is it is this what fueled Atlanta? You tell me. I would like to begin by announcing some important developments in our war against the Chinese virus. That name gets further and further away from China as opposed to calling it the Chinese virus. 
once again engaged in a great global struggle. We have waged a fierce battle against the invisible enemy, the China virus. Okay, the China virus. I've called it the China virus. Uh, It originated in China. And you know what? Traditionally, that's what we call some of these uh, horrible viruses. Okay, the Ebola virus came from the Ebola River in the Congo. That's how it got its name. Let's take a look at the Zika virus, (laughs) the Zika forest in Uganda. I didn't know there was a forest, but there is. Uh, Next, please. MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. I've heard of MERS. I didn't know it stood for the Middle East, but it does. Next, please. The West Nile virus. West Nile, Uganda, a region in Uganda. Uh, Let's see. Spanish flu. I think that's Spain. Oh, and here's one. Lyme disease. Did you know that there is a Lyme, Connecticut, and that's where the disease originated? Happens all the time. And scientific papers actually use these terms. Let's take a look. MERS, I think there's a CDC guidebook that talks all about the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. Now, there is the one time that he made a bit of a, well, is it a joke or what? But we'll play it for you. He said it at a rally. Uh, hit it. By the way, it's a disease, without question, has more names than any disease in history. I can name Kung Flu. I can name... 19 different versions of names. Okay, he said Kung Flu. Now, do we think that set off the murderous rampage in Atlanta? Is that a reasonable connection to make? Law enforcement are not making that connection. The shooter is saying that he had a horrible, horrible problem with sex addiction. Now let's switch to Boulder. Again, all of the victims in this case are Caucasian, the shooter originally from Syria. Now, I'm wondering for a moment, we've heard so much in this country about white supremacy, right? It is the number one threat. Is law enforcement looking that perhaps this was in reaction to that? He may have been fueled by the white supremacy rhetoric that's out there, that it's a danger and he wanted to stop it. I mean, listen to some of this. Racism is real in America. That is tonight's lesson in white privilege. White America needs to come to terms with the fact that we live in a racist society. All I kept thinking about over the past few weeks was just how lucky I am as a white privileged person. The fact of the matter is, there is institutional racism in America. Everyone black I know feels hunted. This is white privilege on steroids. The threat of white supremacy looms large. What a great danger, white supremacy uh, holds white supremacists, bigger threat inside this country than ISIS, Al-Qaeda, anyone else. Wow. So could a deranged person possibly get it in their head that white people are a real threat? Take a look. In Boulder, all of the victims were Caucasian. Unlike in, in Atlanta, where there were some Caucasian and, 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 and mostly Asian, all were Caucasian. I think that's interesting. And no one is talking about it. Huh. Why do you think that is? Hmm? Now, let's put them both up side by side. We have Atlanta. Uh, Everyone is trying to say, insist, is a hate crime. Yet there seems to be no evidence of that from law enforcement and the shooter himself, the alleged shooter saying he was motivated by other reasons. He's deranged. So hold on a second. So what does that tell you guys? What does that tell you? So it tells you that the gold spa thing was not an organized thing, right? Uh, Neither was the King Supers. It was an organized thing. 
uh, by the left and the left jumped on the gold spa to control the narrative because we can't talk about human trafficking. We can't talk about the abuses of women in those massage parlors. You know what? Because maybe, because I only did a little bit of digging, you'll be very surprised what kind of individuals go to these massage spots. Right, CNN? Right, big wigs? Right? 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 So let's just focus on the color of the skin, which, by the way, the non-white person who's an Arab, right, North African, right, (laughs) His picture has, you know, great filters to shine up. They boosted up those gamma rays right there. Uh, So that way he looks whiter than he is too. You know, it's just, you know, we can't talk about victims of human trafficking being held against their will to perform sexual acts and a sex crazed soy boy that goes in there and lights him up because they probably laughed at his wiener or said, you don't have enough money for sucky, sucky long time. That's the problem. They will tell you the story they want you to know rather than the real one. But minutes after it happened, we were talking about it on telegram as Asian hooker lives matter. Okay. So that's key. They're only telling you what. You know, they want you to thump, listen to, and they want people to start attacking white people. Because when they start attacking white people, you get your guns. And therefore, you make their job easy. You see? This is how they're going to take your guns. They're going to piss you off. They're going to come for you. They're going to have crazy people like the people that would stop me in line. I mean, my daughter once, it was, I think I said it on the radio, it was, Months and months ago, um, you know, when control of virus first hit, she went to Dunkin' Donuts and was in line behind people and she was waiting to buy a donut and she was told she had white privilege just for standing in line behind everyone waiting for a donut. It's like they're aching to provoke you. And now they're amplifying the message so they can get more deranged individuals that are on the verge of popping, right? to come and hunt you down. That's what they want. And they want to install more fear into you. Don't go out because somebody might say you're white supremacist and kill you. That's what's going to happen. Pay attention. That's what they're doing. They want to aggravate you to the point that you do come out guns a blazing. And so those of you that are that pissed, don't do it. You know, you're a responsible gun owner. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't give them the satisfaction of blaming you, the people, for destroying each other. Don't do it. Don't. Because that's exactly what they're doing, provoking. The guy on the right, the alleged shooter, he's also deranged, but we also have some circumstantial evidence that indicates that he may have had a radical Islamic agenda. Okay? It's quite clear. Nobody wants to talk about that in the mainstream media. As recently as yesterday, they were right back to talking about January 6th, January 6th. And um, all the folks who fueled that, Donald Trump, right-leaning media, right, all responsible, doesn't work that way. We've got to be very, very careful, though, about what we say now. You've heard about this. People are afraid of being canceled, afraid of being deplatformed. 
We started on Barack Obama. I want to go back to Barack Obama, back when he was trying to impress us, back when he wanted us to like him. That amazing speech that he gave that convinced so many people he was on our side the summer of 2004. Nobody talks about this line anymore. I wish they did. That is the true genius of America. A faith, a faith in simple dreams. An insistence on small miracles. That we can say what we think, write what we think without hearing a sudden knock on the door. That sudden knock at the door doesn't seem so far-fetched anymore. Write what you think, say what you think. No, we don't live in that country anymore. And he helped change it for the worse. Hmm? All right, time for some Trump truth. You are fake news. <laughs> that was awesome. That was super awesome. So it's true. They have taught you that you're too scared to be canceled. Nobody can cancel you. You decide if they let you get canceled. Nobody can cancel me. Nope. What are you going to do? Silence me? Huh? Who are you to silence me? You shouldn't be worried about being deplatformed. We'll find another place to hang out. Right? That's the way it is. Nobody can shut us up. They could try. They could remove us from their mainstream. But in the end, we're their bread and butter. So they're going to want us back. So there's going to be more platform and more platform. You can't cancel the truth, dude. That's the way it is. You can't cancel the truth. It's impossible to cancel the truth. You could try, right? And you might succeed for maybe, what, a few hours, right? A couple of days, right? But you can't cancel the truth. Now, take a listen to President Trump giving his exclusive reaction to uh, Biden, who can't tie his shoe and is dangerous for our nations. Um, actual, do you want to call it? A, it was a train wreck. Take a listen. Biden's first press conference is former President Donald J. Trump. I just wanted to say I'm not showing the video, so I don't violate any policies um, because, um, you know, uh, Fox doesn't allow people to um, play uh, their videos. Just so you know, they will come after you. Mr. President, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Um, Joe Biden is brazenly stonewalling, as you could see in that press conference, requests for access to these facilities. And as you heard, he has no idea when access will be granted. What's going on here? And would you get away with this? No, I wouldn't. And we had the border the most secure, they say, in 20 years. But really, I think from the beginning, it's never been like this. We built almost 500 miles of wall. And it was new wall. You know, they like to say renovation. It was, the renovation was we knocked down the old wall and we built a new wall. And then they say they call it a renovation. Uh, but this was new wall and, and incredible wall that was, you know, really did a job. In addition to that, Mexico worked great with us. We had a tremendous relationship and me with the president, who's a tremendous person. And they gave us 28,000 free, 28,000 soldiers along our border. And they stopped people from coming in. And what you're doing now and what you're seeing now is inhumane. These children and people are a tremendous number of children, by the way, but they're living on top of each other in squalor. This is squalor. That's why they won't allow the press to come in. We let the press go in. And we had much smaller numbers, frankly, because people couldn't come up. 
but we let the press come in, but they're living in very dangerous conditions. There's no testing for COVID-19, as we call it sometimes. Sometimes we call it something else. But uh, there's no testing. There's no nothing. And what's going on is just absolutely insane. It's a horrible situation. And everyone that's seen it, nobody's seen worse. Nobody's seen anything like it. And if you get cameras inside some of those facilities, you would see children on top of children, and you'd see filth. And you'd see things that you would not believe possible. Well, I want to I want to move on to a claim that uh, Biden made about your administration's treatment of the migrant children. Watch. When an unaccompanied child ends up at the border, we're just going to let them starve to death and stay on the other side. No previous administration did that either, except Trump. I'm not going to do it. He was accusing you of starving people who were wanting yeah. to come across the, the Rio Grande or the border to the United States. Your reaction? Well, first of all, it's just the opposite. But by the time we finished what we were doing, very few people were coming up because they knew they weren't going to get through. Uh, we stopped catch and release, which was a disaster. That's where you catch somebody, take their name and release them into our country. We stopped that. Uh, they were supposed to come back years later and go to court, but nobody ever comes back and goes to court. And the very biggest thing was we had the stay in Mexico policy. And that means that we wouldn't allow people to wait in our country until they were totally checked out, which most of them didn't get checked out. And they would go back to their own country uh, if young kids were with parents. But a lot of times they weren't and we would take care of them. But uh, it, it is what they are doing now is outrageous. And they should finish the wall. If they finish the wall, they'd be able to have a lot, you know, a lot of people are right now staying in the few openings. We have openings in the wall that were going to be closed up, could have been done over the next month. If it weren't for the fact that we got sued 11 times, many of the suits by Congress and people in Congress and Democrats, uh, we would have had the wall. It, it was almost completed, but we would, it took two and a half years to get the final sign-offs from the court victories that we had. We had great court victories, but uh, they sued us for two and a half years. And they were suing us on the financing, on the uh, environment, on lots of things. We won the lawsuits and we built almost 500 miles. They should immediately yeah. seal it up and finish it up. And you would see a lot of a lot of good things happen. But uh, nobody knows reaction? exactly what they're doing. Mr. Nobody President, what was, your what was your just general reaction to the way Biden handled the uh, so-called press conference today? You know, he, he, he read quite a bit from reference notes. Um, but he did, he did take some questions. Uh, it was unusual to say the least. Well, they were strange questions and they were asked in a very, uh, interesting way. It was like softballs, like you're throwing softballs up and it's just a different world. It's uh, nobody's seen anything like it. You know, it, you know, it better than anybody. You cover it so well. And it's, uh, it's very sad to watch. Actually, they're, they're feeding him questions. They're, easy questions. I noticed Peter Ducey didn't get to ask a question today and uh, there could be no difficult questions. Uh, and they're ready to rip the microphone away. If somebody did get a little bit testy, uh, and, you know, he just look. the whole thing is ridiculous. You know it. And so do I. Oh, where was and, there? Where you know was there Jim Acosta? The so do Mr. I. Mr. President, where was there Jim Acosta? I mean, uh, uh, they'd have Acosta well, like in your face every day. They don't, and others they like don't have that. Yeah. And if Jim Acosta were there, he'd ask very uh, soft questions. It would be a whole different thing. The Democrats uh, are also, look, yeah, the Democrats are also saying that a, a problem here is that 
apparently America is not sending enough U.S. taxpayer dollars to Central America um, to solve or alleviate this border crisis. Here was Nancy Pelosi today. President, then president, had withdrawn the money that was allocated for the Northern Triangle. Now, that was a mistake, and we have to restore that. They withdrew the money to punish those countries. Mr. President, did you withdraw money from Central America to punish them? Absolutely. That's right. I, on that, I agree with her. First time in a long time, years that I've agreed with her. We were paying them $500 million a year. Nobody knew what they were doing with the money. And they were sending criminals to our country. You know, when they're sending people in the caravans, as we call them, uh, they're not exactly their finest, okay? And more importantly, perhaps, is that they wouldn't take it as we would, because ICE was incredible, the job they did, and Border Patrol, incredible. These are incredible men and women. When we got somebody, we captured a bad MS-13 or group, we'd bring them back to the country, and they wouldn't take them. And I said, what are we doing? How much money do we give them? We pay them $500 million a year. I said, stop paying the money immediately. We stopped paying. They called the following day. They said, we'd love to have MS-13 come back into our country. Please send them immediately, and we will not be sending any more bad people. And we then got along very well with them. So she's absolutely right. They abused us in so many different ways. They wouldn't take prisoners and murderers back, and we didn't want them in our country. So we'd bring them back. They wouldn't take them. I stopped paying the $500 million that we were wasting on giving it to them. As soon as I did that, they immediately agreed to take back everybody. They said it would be a great honor to take them back. I Please send them attention. immediately. Yeah. Uh, Mr. President, today NBC News reporting that the DHS, of course, created it was created after 9-11 to protect America from international terrorism. Now, they're moving toward what Intel officials are now saying is the new top threat, domestic violent extremism that includes apparently surveilling social media. One, uh, here's what they mean. There's a quote from the article. The idea is to identify people who may, through their social media behavior, be prone to influence by toxic messaging spread by foreign governments, terrorists, and domestic extremists. Mr. President, their DHS is going after uh, people who may be your supporters, who they believe are domestic extremists because they say things like, let's take back our government? Are you concerned about that? What I'm concerned about is Antifa and BLM and some of the horrible things that we witnessed over the last, frankly, long period of time when they take over Portland and they take over the courthouse and they destroy the building. You have to see what they've done to the building over the years. And just over the last few weeks, they've been having massive riots and other things in Portland. And even the crazy mayor, this mayor is just absolutely, he's a radical left and he can't take it anymore. He's actually said he can't take it anymore. There, You have to see what the streets of Portland look like. They've been burning the city down and nobody does anything about it. And they don't go after those people, but they go after people that I guess you'd call them uh, lean toward the right. And they wave American flags. In many cases, they're waving the American flag and they love our country. And those people, they're arresting them by the dozens, but they don't uh, go after Antifa, who killed people, by the way, who burned down our cities. Look at what they did to Seattle. They took over a big partial of land in Seattle, a big, a big portion of the city. And had I not 
gotten the National Guard ready to go in. We were going in the following morning. They just gave up the land. The same thing in Minnesota. In Minneapolis, they took over the city. Had we not gotten the National Guard in there, uh, it was you would not have Minneapolis anymore. It would have been burned down to the ground. Are you Those concerned? are the ones you have to worry about. And that was the end of the interview. That's the end of the interview that I have for now. We'll watch a little bit more uh, tomorrow or listen to. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to get this coffee done. And then we're going to come back and talk about water. Um, it's, it's quite fun. See you in just a bit. Seven Nation Army couldn't hold me back They're gonna rip it off Taking their time right behind my back And I'm talking to myself at night Because I can't forget Back and forth through my mind Behind a cigarette Coming from my eyes says, Leave it alone. Don't want to hear about it. Every single one's got a story to tell. Everyone knows about it. From the Queen of England to the House of Hope. And if I catch you coming back my way, I'm gonna sell it to you. And that ain't what you want to hear, but that's what I'll do. And the feelings coming from my phone to find a home. I'm gonna wait to God Far from this opera for forevermore I'm gonna work a star Make the sweat drip out of every pore And I'm bleeding and I'm bleeding and I'm bleeding right before the Lord All the words are gonna play from me and I will sing no more And the stings coming from my blood it tells me go back home Go back home Seven Nation Army <laughs> You guys will figure that one out soon. So let's let's talk about things that we are told that may be or may not be what they are. And I think it's important that we um, 
understand and agree, all of us together, that uh, it turns out that, you know, seawater and ocean water is all salt, right? And one basic thing, you know, maybe, maybe we should see like, um, water experiment. I'm pretty sure there is one. Mm-hmm. Did they show it on density? Okay. Yeah. That's a two minute experiment. I think we should see that. What's up? Okay. So let's do that first because, you know, not everybody understands uh, the concepts of osmosis and water density. So um, let's listen. And for those of you watching, watch this experiment uh, where it talks about water density and a concentration of like salt. And so that way you guys can understand just what you're going to be seeing today. Everybody, safety is number one priority. And for this experiment, we're going to need three glasses of water. I have one regular water, a second one with a lot of salt. We're going to need salt. And the third glass, just half full glass of water. And you want some extra water in the bottom. And then we're gonna need three eggs and a spoon. Let's check out what we're gonna do. This is gonna be water density experiment. So we got regular water right here, just stop water. We're gonna drop an egg and we'll see what happens. You see, it's sunk. Like, you know, any normal. So just for those of you that are on the podcast, the three glasses are the one glass filled with water the other glass filled with a lot of salt, and then another glass that is half filled with just regular water. He drops an egg into the glass that has just water and the egg sank to the bottom. Well, egg would do it, probably will sink in the water. But this is like really salty water. I put a lot of salt, uh, and then let's see, we're gonna drop an egg carefully, and it floats in a salty water because of density, right? And we got the third glass of water right here. And I'm gonna put a lot of salt in there. You see how much salt I put? Mix it up. Make sure you mix it good. Let's put some more salt in there. We're gonna put this egg in there and let's see if it floats. As you can see, that egg is floating, right? So basically, the second glass had a ton of salt where it looked white, places the egg, and the egg is floating, breaching the surface. Now, in the half-filled glass, he puts the egg inside, and um, he puts a lot of salt, (laughs) so much salt, it looks whiter than the full glass, right? And he adds the egg, and it floats. So now that it's floating, he's grabbing his, uh, his bottle of water. All right, and now we're going to put regular water on top of the egg, like carefully, you know what I mean? See what happens. The egg actually stays in the middle. Why is that? Isn't that funny? All right, check it out. The non-salty water, the egg sinks. Salty water, the egg floats. And why is this egg floating in the middle? And tell me how does it work scientifically? And all the best explanation, thumbs up. Awesome explanation, keep it up and check out my next experiments. So it's about density, but 
when we're talking about big bodies of water, it's not only density, it's currents, it's terrain. But think of this. Would it be possible that you have an ocean, like a massive ocean, and then under the ocean to have a crap ton of salt water, of, of fresh water that you can drink? Like, I'm going to really put a straw in it and drink it and it has no salt. Can that happen? Knowing, uh, you know, what you know about you know, dilution, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If there is water that is sitting under, I don't know, the Atlantic or the Pacific, right? That's fresh water. It would at some point be mixing, right? It would totally mix. It, there, there would be no way that it wouldn't mix over time, at least, you know, uh, that the particles, you know, blend in or something like that. Well, what if I told you that? actually exists and a lot of people don't know about it. Take a listen to this. Okay, we already know that there are water-bearing minerals within the Earth's mantle that are essentially deconstructed water. But this time when we say that there are giant reservoirs of water hiding deep under the ocean, we mean fresh water as you and I would recognize it, that we could drink like water water about 2,800 cubic kilometers of it. Just to emphasize how freaking big that is, that's enough to fill over a billion Olympic swimming pools. Or to put it another way, it stretches not only the length of New Jersey's coastline, but also that of Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, and most of New York. Casual. Oceanographic teams have known for a while that there are pockets of fresh water below the seafloor. They would run into them occasionally when drilling offshore for oil. But when geologists and geophysicists started to explore how big these pockets actually are, they were floored. A collaborative team from Columbia University and Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution used two different marine electromagnetic methods to pulse the seafloor. One method involved deploying 10 broadband electromagnetic receivers onto the actual seafloor, which then looked down to detect what lurks below. The second method was to tow an antenna broadcasting a certain frequency behind the ship with electromagnetic receivers at four different depth levels. These techniques rely on the fact that salt water is a much better conductor of electromagnetic waves than fresh water is, allowing us to probe things that we can't see visually, like the composition of the earth below the seafloor. Scientists believe the water's probably been there for a pretty long time. When everything was frozen in the last ice age, the sea levels were lower, so what is now this ocean floor was actually exposed. And when the glaciers melted, freshwater melt-off formed watersheds on the exposed ocean floor sediments, eventually getting trapped there in huge pockets as sea levels rose again. The water's origin story may mean that aquifers like this could provide us with clues about the glaciers and sea levels of the past. But the team also believes that these undersea aquifers are being supplied with new freshwater from subterranean systems. See, Rising and falling ocean tides provide alternating pressure to deep onshore sediments, acting a bit like an absorbent sponge, pulling underground water toward the ocean. This means that the hydrologic systems under the land, many of which we already use, may be connected to undersea aquifers in ways we didn't previously know about. Researchers hope that the discovery means this particular aquifer is not the only one of its kind, and that they can use similar methods to find more. And at this point, you may be wondering, can we actually use this water? 
The UN estimates that there will be 9.7 billion people on Earth by 2050, and several countries like India are already suffering major water shortages. As early as 2025, about half of the world's population may lack as much fresh water as they need, and maybe these newly discovered undersea aquifers could provide us with an unexpected solution. But if we ever wanted to use this water for drinking, we would have to desalinate it, as it does get a little salty, especially the farther out into the aquifer you go. It is much less salty than ocean water, though, making it less expensive and difficult to desalinate, and potentially giving us some hope when staring down an impending water crisis. There's cause for pause also, though, because new simulations have shown that because of the connection between onshore hydrologic systems and undersea aquifers, Pulling water from under the ocean may then pull more water from under the land and could cause the ground to literally sink. So before we can think of these surprisingly massive aquifers as usable resources, a lot of thought and probably a lot of computer modeling is going to need to be put into how we could access them. And if we do, what the effects will be. Are there other deep earth projects that you want us to cover? Let us know in the comments. And for more exciting discoveries, make sure you Interesting. Very interesting. So now I thought, you know, since we've talked about Africa, that I share with you a place in Africa. It's actually quite pretty. Um, and I know that most of you uh, know that um, penguins are Antarctic animals, right? They're from the Antar Antarctic, correct? Well, <laughs> did you know that there were penguins in South Africa too? Wait, you should see them. They're actually quite pretty. For those of you that can't see it, um, you'll hear it because the there are, this is a, oh, I think this is it. I'd like you to take a five minute tour of um, Cape Town in South Africa, which is actually quite pretty, but they have penguins. <laughs> so weird. So weird. And you can hang out with them as long as you're respectful. Um, here you go. Welcome to Unilad Adventure. This week, we're showing you some of the amazing things you can do around Cape Town. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so let's get right into it. Cape Town is an incredible coastal city with everything from stunning beaches and mountains to beautiful streets that are full of life, music, and culture. There are so many things to explore here, but one of Cape Town's biggest benefits is the nature that surrounds it. Climb up Table Mountain for a jaw-dropping view of the city. They also have a cable car if hiking isn't for you. Up here you can see the iconic layer of clouds that covers the mountain's peak. This natural occurrence is known as the tablecloth. Another great hike is Lion's Head Mountain. If you time it just right, the sun will be setting as you reach the peak. It's one of the most rewarding hikes around. Just make sure you take a torch for the dark trail back down. In the city, there's the colorful neighborhood of Bocap where every house is a different color. This is a photographer's dream. You can head over here and explore on your own, or locals give free walking tours where you can learn more about the neighborhood as you go. Cape Town is surrounded by beautiful beaches, but one of the best places for catching some waves is Landudno Beach. This small picturesque spot is a surfer's paradise and a great place to chill. If water sports aren't your thing, you can always have fun playing at the shoreline. If you're looking for a great day trip, we have a couple of recommendations. First is driving from Cape Town to the Cape of Good Hope. There's so much to see along this route, 
and it's one of the most stunning drives you can experience. Take the Chapman's Peak route. Your first stop should be Hout Bay. There's a lookout point here where you can see the entire bay. Further down the route, you'll reach Nordhoek Beach, a huge beach with incredibly white sands. It'll be super windy here, but it's definitely a good place to stop for a nice view and some great pictures. At this point, you'll want to drive across the peninsula to Simonstown, where you'll find Boulders Beach. Here you can see wild African penguins in their natural protected habitat. You can get up close by walking over the raised boardwalks or even head down onto the beach itself. But remember, the penguins live here, so be respectful of their personal space. From here, the Cape of Good Hope is only half an hour away. This is where you can stand at the most southwestern tip of Africa. It's an iconic spot and an unmissable photo opportunity. Cape Let me tell you why Cape Hope is called Cape Hope. It was actually called the Cape of Storms by first sailors uh, because there are insane storms and waters at that tip of Africa, right? That tip of Africa. And it was actually coined as such. But um, in uh, the late 1400s, King John of Portugal um, called it the Cape of Good Hope because it, um, you know, sailors didn't want to travel anymore, right? Because it was the sea route that they would go to India um, and to the east, right? They weren't using any canals. <laughs> they were going around the long way and people didn't want to go. So they called it uh, the Cape of, um, uh, of Good Hope, that it was optimistic that once you got through that, that cape, that you would be sailing on to Asia and getting all the riches and the, and the rugs and the spices and the silk. So um, that's, a, that's a fun fact. Now let's get back to the tour. Point is a further five minutes away by car. And there's a short hike from the car park out to the end of the point, where you can even see wild baboons if you're lucky. Just make sure they don't steal your lunch. This whole area is part of the Table Mountain National Park and the natural beauty preserved here is outstanding. The sun can be really harsh so make sure you pack sunscreen for your hike. Head back to Cape Town and you've just completed one of the best days out you can have. For a more laid back day out you should definitely check out Stellenbosch. It's one of the world's most famous wine territories. Not only will you see the beautiful local vineyards but you can even book a wine tasting tour where you'll spend the whole day sampling wines from around the region. Now, we're by no means wine connoisseurs, but some of our favorite vineyards were Mirlust, Tokara, Lavinier, and Morati. And we managed to go to all of them on a tour that cost just 1,050 rand, with a pickup from Cape Town included. That works out at about 63 British pounds or 87 US dollars for the entire trip. The company we used was called Siba Siba. They haven't paid us or anything, but we loved the trip so much that we've put a link in the description for you guys to check out. Use them at your own discretion. If you don't have time for a full day trip out of the city, then we've got you covered. Check out Kirsten Bosch Gardens. It's regarded as one of the best botanical gardens in the world and sits right on the slopes of Table Mountain. Walk along the overhead canopy walkway for the best experience with stunning views all around. Another great experience you can have is kayaking with dolphins. You leave from the Victoria and Albert waterfront for this epic adventure. 
And whilst there's obviously no guarantee that you'll see dolphins, the trip itself is worth it alone for the amazing views of Cape Town and the rare opportunity to kayak in the ocean, which if you've never done it before is a real treat. All right, so we've been all over Cape Town by this point, from the oceans to the mountaintops and everything in between. But if you really want to see this city at its finest, there's no better option than a helicopter ride. Now this is one of the pricier attractions, but you can find some pretty good deals online. And there's nothing like seeing Cape Town from above, with its incredible beaches, rugged mountains, and clear blue waters. You won't be disappointed with this once-in-a-lifetime experience. Well, that's all we have time for this week, but please leave your recommendations. So that was a fun video. I can tell you that the water in South Africa, I don't care how hot it is outside, it is freezing cold. Now, I'm going to show you where most of these um, crashes happened. Um, there's this guy that I, I that I that I watch his videos a lot. Uh, he's like a sailor, you know, on his own in his boat, and he decided that he's going to venture across the Atlantic from Africa, and he started in South Africa. But there's an island called St. Helena's. It's the island that they um, actually uh, banned. Napoleon Bonaparte too. Did you know that? Did you know that he was ousted to an island? Wait till you see it. So I'm going to allow him to like intro for like a minute so he could tell you what's up because he went from the tip of South Africa up to Namibia. And then from Namibia, he went across the Atlantic and he stopped at St. Um, uh, Helena's. And then from there, he was going to go to um, uh, South America. So I want you guys to take a listen. Hi, this is Craig and welcome back to Cruising Off Duty. If you've been watching the channel, you know I took morning, 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. It's usually still pitch dark. We keep moving across timelines. We're not changing the boat clock. So 6 to 9 a.m. is actually dark. And then I do 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. And in between, you're supposed to catch some snooze time. But uh, you got to get used to rolling. I'm used to it now. But you got to get used to the rolling and the slamming. Um, it's not too, too bad right now, but just showing you what we've got. This is out my cabin window. Yeah, that looks pretty day. See what I mean? That's pretty much what you see and hear all the time in your cabin. But it's been like that every single day. 18 to 25 knots, sometimes gusting to 30 knots every single day. It's like Groundhog Day. We haven't had a calm day yet. We've never got a chance to put up that parasailer or spinnaker. Uh, yeah, because it's never been calm enough for that sort of sail. So. Rudolph again, so yay for us. So seven days later from the coast of Namibia in Africa, they get to um, the island of St. Helena, and here he is. Um, introducing you to that island. I want you guys to take a look at it. All right, it's time for us to douse this beautiful sail. Okay, blow it. So then we just got to 
take the sock down, put it in the storage, and we're done. Yeah. That was a much easier, wasn't it, with just the two lines on the and easier to blow. Yeah, I mean, this was our third time dousing this sail, and it's already feeling pretty uh, easy to do. So I think by the time we get our uh, get our system down, we'll be able yeah. to do it. We'll get this down Quite. ten times. Yeah, ten times we'll be good at it. Ten times we'll be good at it. Now, Saint Helena Island was definitely the jewel of the voyage, in my opinion. This island was breathtaking. First, you start to sail towards it, and it's just amazing how tall these cliffs are. I mean, it's hard to even get it all in unless you're far away from the island. But yeah, we're in 10,000 feet of water. Then all of a sudden there's these straight up cliffs. And you wonder, how does anybody even get on this island? Well, there's only really one area on this island that's low enough for a port to be built. And of course, the whole town is built around this one area. Because the island is so remote, I expected this island to be very third world with very little amenities. But uh, it was not like that at all. And the people were super friendly. All right, here we are pulling into St. Helena. I guess they call this a harbor. It's not much of a harbor. It barely sticks out into the island from the ocean. This is where we gotta go. We're supposed to pick up a red buoy. One right there. Very windy here. Only through the island, I guess. Check out these stunning cliffs. And we did a tour of this entire island both on land and on water, and it's like this everywhere. The first explorers must have had one hell of a time trying to figure out how to get on this island. Okay, here's the uh, red boy we've decided is the one we're going to take. There's more down here. There's actually four more. So we can have a lot of visitors coming in at once. We're the only one here. It does look like, like a prison island. You can't get off. After 16 days of voyaging, we made it to St. Helena Island, which was kind of a bucket list place for me to go because so few sailors have ever sailed here. It's in the middle of the South Atlantic. So it's not like being in the Caribbean where you're at another island that's only a day or two away and you think, yeah, what the heck, let's go check that other island out as well. This isn't one of those islands. You have to go way, way out of your way to go see this island. And it like exceeded my expectations. For one thing, they speak English, which is awesome and they're super friendly and the island was amazingly clean and there was amenities and banks and stores it was awesome i love this island it really wasn't that expensive to moor or stay here either so it is definitely a must-see place if you're going to do a circumnavigation of the globe and you're going to go around the uh, tip of africa to come back into the atlantic this is an island you really really have to stop at so definitely check out next episode because we're going to do a full tour of the island both on land and later as we go to leave we're going to little sail around the island to show you just those stunning beautiful cliffs up close and personal from the water it's an awesome episode so don't miss that if you enjoyed this episode and you found it informative or entertaining show the channel some love by giving it a thumbs up definitely subscribe to the channel hold on so i'm going to show you a little bit of that island i just uh there's a video that he had of it but I also wanted to show you something super fun that I had watched a couple years ago on his channel that was um, so breathtaking. Hold on. While he was like, uh, you know, sailing from- Hi, this is Craig and welcome back to Cruising Off. Sorry. While he was- um, Leave while he was on his way to Namibia from South Africa- um, Hi, we are Craig actually, and Janison on- Oh my gosh, these auto plays. He um, actually had pelicans uh, get on his boat and um, a seal.
when he was uh, going to Namibia. Uh, so it was it was quite fun to watch. And I think, uh, you know, so, you know, it's an extraordinary tale for someone to say, yeah, totally. They uh, totally hopped on to my um, my yacht and, you know. <laughs> that happened and you know, you wouldn't believe it until you see it. And I wanted you guys to see it um, where he was um, bombarded by a seal and pelicans. So let me fast forward. This is him going to Namibia uh, to get his first port of call uh, and, you know, tidy up his ship. It's uh, quite fascinating. And uh, I'll, you'll see why it's quite fascinating because the wall of water, uh, is what makes it fascinating. Cloudy and cold out here. Very, very cold. Didn't think Africa was ever cold, but it's cold. Took us five days to get here. Pretty smooth sailing. You'll see episodes all about that. We got here, the plan was to drop Tomas off so he could fly home and two Phoenix uh, Marines crew was gonna come on board to do a little tweaking after we'd been pounding through the waves for five days. There's usually some adjustments that wanna be done on a brand new boat. They came as we pulled in to Walvis Bay here. We noticed thousands of jellyfish, tons of seals. You're gonna see an episode where five pelicans landed on our moving boat, huge pelicans. And while that was going on and I'm filming that on my 4K camera, a seal, a massive seal jumps onto our moving boat on the back of Sugar Scoop and tries to climb into the boat. Epic footage, can't wait to show you that. But so much wildlife in the water that we didn't- They didn't realize that it was plankton rich and um, it clogged up their filter for water, which was crazy. Um, and that's something a lot of people don't say, just how much life is actually out there and how uh, fascinating it is um, to see all of that. Um, it is something incredible. But I wanted to show you guys this um, prison island because it was a prison island. This is where they sent Napoleon into exile. Um, and we'll skim through a little bit of it. And those of you listening on podcast, um, I will um, describe it to you as much as I can. But just so that you understand, there wasn't a real port that extended into the water. They're parking their boats out in the water and hooking up to buoys. And then a little taxi boat will come and get them to bring them to shore. And it's like, and the minute you get onto shore, it's the city. Like buildings are right there. It's like up on the front. There's no like, oh, you know, you need to travel to get into there. The city is in like this. It was an amazing adventure. And definitely one of the jewels or the best stops on this whole voyage was St. Helena Island. And that's the one we're on now. We'll show you there's not only a lot to see and do here, but there's a lot of history and a lot of intrigue and interest here. So we're going to get into some of that as well in this episode. So whether St. Helena is one of those bucket list places that you plan to visit with your boat or whether you're somebody who knows that there's. So I just wanted to point out that the Africans were there. Already on a cliff rock island before Napoleon. I just thought I'd point that out. No chance in the world you're going to go all the way to the middle of the South Atlantic. I think you'll get a lot out of this episode. Before we go any further, I just want to give a special shout out to the patrons that support the channel, many of whom have been supporting this channel since long before I was doing these transatlantic sailing voyages. And then in this particular voyage, I had these sponsors jump on board to help defer the cost of me flying halfway around the world, only to get on a catamaran and sail almost halfway around the world, all while I had to leave my regular paying job. Thanks so much. I couldn't have done it without you. And hopefully you enjoy this episode. We anchor and hoist the sail. 
Okay, this stop at St. Helena Island was breathtaking. Let's get to know St. Helena just a little bit better. As you can probably tell by looking at the satellite photo, it is a volcanic island in the South Atlantic. It is 16 kilometers wide by 8 kilometers tall, which makes it seem really, really tiny when you try and find it on Google Map in the middle of the South Atlantic. You really have to zoom in a lot to see it. And as of the 2016 census, it has about 4,500 people that permanently live on the island. It is very remote, so very few sailors have probably ever visited this island. How remote, you might ask? It is 4,000 kilometers east of Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and about 2,000 kilometers west of Angola in southwestern Africa. So yeah, it's out there. You really have to make a point of trying to find it. If you are, you're not going to accidentally bump into this island, believe me. When the Portuguese first discovered it in 1502, it was uninhabited, as you can imagine, since it's in the middle of nowhere. But as you can tell from the St. Helena flag, it wasn't long before those big, powerful British came along and pushed the Portuguese off and took control. So it is... Okay, so that's a lie because there were Africans and they slaughtered all of them, so I'm just saying. Part of the British Overseas Territory, along with Ascension Island to the north and Tristan da Cunha Island to the south. Back then, islands like this were very valuable because all world trade was done by boat. The East India Company used this island all the time for trading between Africa and Europe and Brazil or South America and Europe. So this island became very valuable. So they put forts like this on it just to make sure nobody else took the island back. I don't think this fort ever saw any real action, but they did use it for prisoners at one point. More on that later. We actually take a tour of this and we walk through it. Very cool. Some other interesting facts about St. Helena. It's the second oldest overseas British territory behind Bermuda. I was a little surprised by that, but yeah, that's the truth. Another interesting fact about this island that some of you probably have already heard of is this is the island that Napoleon was exiled to in 1815. How Napoleon got to this island is kind of a long story, but the Coles Notes version is the French were defeated, there was a treaty, Napoleon was exiled to an island called Elba in the Mediterranean, and he was given full reign over the small island. Uh, but at some point he got sick of being there and escaped and got back to France. And then they decided, okay, we can't trust him to be in the Mediterranean. So they exiled him to the most remote island they could think of. And that was St. Helena Island. And then he wasn't put in a jail cell because, again, he was a high and mighty guy back in those days. So they gave him a house, uh, but he complained nonstop about this house and how cold and damp it was, even though he had a couple of servants to help him. So it wasn't a jail cell, but then he later died and they found out there was arsenic in the wallpaper. So... Maybe he did have reasons to complain about the house. He died in 1821 on St. Helena, so they made a tomb for him on the island. But then in 1840, the French argued that they should be able to get his body back to France, and they allowed it. So now there's a tomb in France for Napoleon. But there's one on the island as well, although his body's not still there. Remember when I said this last episode? It does look like, like a prison island. You can't get off. Well, I was only kidding. Only I was only saying that because the whole island seems to be built on cliffs and it looks impenetrable. So how could anybody A, get on this island or B, get off this island without uh, hurting themselves? But it actually was a prison island. First, there was this Zulu king in like 1890 or something. He fought against the British and no, 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 no. You don't fight against the British so they'll send you to St. Helena Island. And then later in the Second Boer War, they took all the Boer prisoners and they sent them again to St. Helena Island. So it really was a prisoner island for a while there. Now it's not that now. It's a super friendly place. Everybody here is super nice. There's no, there's a prison on the island, but I think it has like six prisoners, according to what I was told. So it's just locals to get in prison. So it's more like a jail cell. But yeah, it's not a prison island. Super friendly. I highly suggest you go. So let's learn about today's modern and friendly St. Helena. This is Jamestown. This is the only main town on the island. It's the only way to really get on the island, especially if you're coming from a boat, because it's the only place on the island low enough that you can just get on. It's not a cliff. So yeah, that's where I'm sure the first explorers ended up getting on the island as well. 
This is where you're going to find almost all the bars, restaurants, uh, grocery stores, and of course the one and only bank. You definitely need to hit the bank because they don't take credit card anywhere on this island. So we needed to get cash as soon as we got on because it was a Saturday and they were almost closed. Sunday they're closed and Monday was a stat holiday so they'd be closed. We would have no way to buy anything and that would have sucked. Now as you see me panning, you'll see a stairway that goes up and that's called Jacob's Ladder. So there is another part of the island where people are populated at the top of this cliff. But as you see me trying to gain elevation, I realized my drone is capped at the factory setting of 400 feet and I couldn't get high enough to show you that. But luckily, there was another drone. Sean had his drone and don't know how, but somehow his drone got high enough to see it. So let's see that now. So there you go. There is the footage of the upper part of Jamestown on the top of the cliff. There's two ways to get up there. You can either take that Jacob's Ladder, long, long, steep staircase all the way to the top. So you can do that or you can take a cab, take a windy road up the... So, okay. So this island, again, it's like a repeat thing where the queens and kings of England decide that they're just going to you know, get islands like Australia and Bermuda, Falkland Islands, St. Helena's, and just deploy prisoners there, right? Because, you know, the world is their playground and they can designate where prisoners go. But here's the funny thing. You can actually fly into that um, uh, country, I guess, if you want to call it 4,000 people, that village country. But I, I'm trying to find it to see if the clip is here. Here's the thing. How did they mess up? I, I can't find it now, but how did they mess up? Right. Listen to this. They say that when they built the airport, they messed up so bad that the winds were so bad that nobody wanted to fly in there. It was dangerous because of the way they built it. They built it against the wrong air currents or something. And so now there's only one plane that will fly out of Johannesburg on a Saturday, and it leaves on a Saturday, it goes in and comes out. And it's all dependent on the wind because they, oh, we totally messed up, right? Like the one airport in this place, we just totally, we just did it wrong. I'm so sorry. Huh. We just, yeah, we just made a mistake. And sorry about that whole island that nobody needs to know about and doesn't take credit cards and is completely off the grid in the middle of nowhere, we're going to make sure that if, you know, we need to get there, we really can't fly planes because damn, we messed up. Oops. You see what I'm trying to say? So that's some food for thought right there. So now let's go to how, um, why the Atlantic and the Pacific oceans don't mix. Now I did, you know, give you that little, um, intro of um, how, uh, you know, salination works, uh, you know, the, the whole concentration of salt or other minerals. But um, I found this excellent explanatory video, which I kind of disagree with, and I'll point it out where I disagree, um, but it's actually pretty much on point. Here you go. Flow into each other. It seems like there's only one big ocean, and people just gave different names to its parts. Well, you'll be amazed how vivid the borders between them are. The border between the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans is like a line between two worlds. It's as if the two oceans meet at an invisible wall, which does not let them flow into each other and mix their waters. Why on earth does it happen? We know for sure there is no invisible wall inside, and water is water. What could interfere with its mixing? The thing is that water can be different too. The Atlantic and Pacific Oceans have different density and chemical makeup. 
the level of salinity and other qualities. One can see by their color that they are far from being the same. The borders between the two bodies of water with different physical and biological characteristics are known as ocean clines. Haloclines, borders between waters with different salinity, are the most spectacular, and this is what we see when the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans meet. The famous explorer Jacques Cousteau found this when he was deep diving in the Straits of Gibraltar. The layers of water with different salinity looked like they were divided with a transparent film, and each layer had its own flora and fauna. Haloclines appear when the water in one ocean or sea is at least five times saltier than in the other. You can create a halocline at home if you pour some seawater or colored salty water in a glass and then add some fresh water on top of it. The only difference is that your halocline will be horizontal, and ocean haloclines are vertical. If you remember a couple of basic things from physics, you might argue that a denser liquid should finally end up lower and less dense higher. If that were true, the border between the two oceans would look not like a vertical line but as a horizontal one and the difference between their salinity would become less obvious the closer they got to each other. So, why doesn't it happen here? Well, first, the difference in density of water of the two oceans is not that great for one of them to get down and the other to rise up. And yet, it's enough to not let them mix. Still, another reason is inertia. One of the inertial forces known as the Coriolis force influences objects when they are moving in the system of axes, which, in its turn, is moving too. In simpler words, the Earth is moving, and all the moving objects on it will be acted upon by Coriolis force, deviating from their course. As a result, the objects on the Earth's surface don't move straight on, but deviate in clockwise order in the northern hemisphere and counterclockwise in the southern. But the Earth is moving slowly. It takes a planet a whole day to make a full circle around its axis. That's why the Coriolis effect gets obvious only in long time intervals with cyclones and ocean flows. And this is why the direction of flows in the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans is different. It also doesn't let them mix. Another important difference between the two oceans' water is the strength of molecules' connection, or surface tensile strength. Thanks to this strength, molecules of a matter hold on to each other. The two oceans have a totally different surface tensile strength, and it also doesn't let them mix. Maybe they could gradually start mixing with time, but as the flows in them have opposite directions, they just don't have time to do this. We think that it's just water in both oceans, but its separate molecules meet for just a short moment and then get carried away with the ocean flow. Don't you think, though, that only the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans don't get on well with each other? There are a lot of places on the planet where water in the two seas or rivers doesn't mix. There are also thermoclines, borders between water of different temperatures, like the warm water of the Gulf Stream and much colder North Atlantic Ocean. Chemoclines are the most amazing ones. These are borders between waters having different microclimate and chemical makeup. The Sargasso Sea is the biggest and most widely known chemocline. It is a sea within the Atlantic Ocean, which has no shores, but you've got no chance not to notice it. Let's have a look at some other spectacular clines on the planet. 1. The North and Baltic Seas These two seas meet near the Danish city of Skagen. The water in them does not mix because of different density. Sometimes you can see the waves of the two seas clash into each other, making foam. And yet, their water mixes gradually. 
That's why the Baltic Sea is slightly sailing. If there had been no water coming to it from the North Sea, it would have been a huge freshwater lake. 2. The Mediterranean Sea and the Atlantic Ocean They meet at the Strait of Gibraltar and have a different density and salinity, so their water does not mix too. 3. The Caribbean Sea and the Atlantic Ocean The place where they meet is near the Antilles and looks like someone has painted water with different shades of blue. Another place where these two meet is the Eleuthera Island of the Bahamas. The Caribbean seawater is turquoise and the Atlantic Ocean water is dark blue. Number 4. The Suriname River and the Atlantic Ocean meet near Paramaribo in South America. 5. The Uruguay River and its afflux. These two meet in Mizzoni's province in Argentina. One of them is clean to be used in agriculture and the other gets almost red because of loam during rainy seasons. 6. The Rio Negro and Solomoas Rivers, part of the Amazon River. Six miles from Manus in Brazil, Rio Negro and Solomoas Rivers run into each other, but don't mix for about two and a half miles. The Rio Negro is dark and Solomoas light. They have a different temperature and speed of flow. 7. Moselle and Rhine they meet at Koblenz, Germany. Rhine has lighter water and Moselle darker. 8. Ilz, Danube, and Inn The junction of these three rivers is in Passau, Germany. Ilz is a small mountain river to the left, the Danube is in the middle, and Inn is the light river to the right. Inn is wider than the Danube here, but still is its afflux. 9. Alignanda and Begarathi rivers meet in India. Alignanda is dark and Bigarathi is light. 10. Irtush and Ulba flow into each other in Kazakhstan, near the city whose name you'll never be able to pronounce. Nor will I. You give it a shot. The Irtish has clean water and Ulba cloudy. Number 11. The Jialing and Yangtze rivers meet in Chongguin, China. The Jialing is clean and the Yangtze is brown. 12. Ertush and Om. These two rivers flow into each other in Omsk, Russia. The Ertush is cloudy and the Om pure and transparent. 13. Chuya and Katun rivers meet in the Altai Republic, Russia. The water of the Chuya has an unusual cloudy white color here and looks dense and thick. Katun is clean and turquoise. Flowing into each other, they form a single two-colored flow that does not mix for some time. 14. The Green and Colorado Rivers The place of their junction is Canyonlands National Park in Utah, USA. Colorado is brown and green is… yep, green. The colors of these rivers go through rocks with different chemical makeup. That's why they have such a big contrast of colors. 15. The Rhone and Arve Rivers They flow into each other in Geneva, Switzerland. The Rhone is a pure river that flows out of the Lake of Geneva. The Arva is cloudy as it gets its water from the glaciers of the Chamonix Valley. So, what do you think about all this water? Of so it looks pretty dope, right? Um, the way it is. Hold on, I have some here. This is an actual footage video. Hold on, it's a small clip that some guy um, had on the freshwater boundaries uh, that had, no, Atlantic meets Pacific. Here we go. And this is important because it goes back to South Africa, where it has three of them. 
What you are looking at in this footage is freshwater meeting seawater, yeah, which was found where the Fraser River enters the Strait of Georgia in Wrong Vancouver, clip. Canada. This is where the freshwater of the river, which is full of silt, meets the denser clear blue salt water of the ocean, making it look like there are two separate bodies of water not mixing. Now it may appear like the freshwater is pushing back the seawater and creating this boundary between the two waters, but that's not the case. The two waters are mixing. It just doesn't look like it. When the freshwater... Okay, that's not the clip. Where is the... It's like a one-minute clip that I had where someone... Was this it? I think it is. I'm here in Cape Horn, Chile, the southernmost part of yeah. South America and a place regarded by sailors as the most iconic and feared landmark in the world. Welcome to the end of the world. First go. discovered by a Dutch sailor in 1616, Cape Horn is the rocky tip of the Hornos Islands in Chile's Tierra del Fuego archipelago. It's the place where the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans meet at the northern end of the Drake Passage. This is the Atlantic Ocean yeah. and this is the Pacific Ocean. Cape Horn is widely considered as the most dangerous place on earth for sailors to cross, almost like the yachting equivalent of climbing Mount Everest. Strong currents, gale force winds, huge waves, floating icebergs, and extreme remoteness are the reasons why the lives of thousands of seafarers have been claimed around the Horn. But today, we are extremely lucky to have perfect weather. It's amazing. This albatross monument commemorates the lives of all sailors who died trying to navigate around the Cape. This place really gives me the chills. A secluded lighthouse. We're in the top of the lighthouse. And the tiny Stella Maris Chapel are nearby as well. It's truly a great experience to visit Cape Horn on this magical day. Who knows if I'll ever be back here, but if one thing's for sure, this place is outstanding. Okay, so um, <laughs> it's dangerous to fly at the tip of South America, but not Africa, which has the Antarctic Ocean, Indian Ocean, and Atlantic meeting. That's the key here. Um, it's uh, quite interesting to see. You know, the freshwater one was pretty good to to see. But mm. so now we're going to look at this Bloomberg clip about, Jessica you know, so uh, this ship blocking the Suez Canal and what people are thinking of doing. Take a listen. They tell you exactly how they mitigate. Any progress at all here? Thanks, Sherry. And for right now, there has not been too much progress. We uh, do know that a specialized salvage team did arrive on site earlier to try and refloat that vessel. Just about three hours ago, they began using this special dredger tool to help. We'll see soon if that's successful. But as of right now, there are more than 200 vessels in line just waiting to pass through the canal. Jess, is there any new estimate as to when we could see traffic resume? Well, Heidi, the estimates for how long it will take really range from a matter of days to a matter of weeks. The company of the salvage team has said that it could take weeks if the ship is really stuck and they need to start getting rid of cargo and doing more dredging. And right now we can already see exactly how the situation is affecting global supply chains. Our sources are telling us that Caterpillar expects delays of a week or more in shipments from Asia to its facilities in Europe. And it's even considering airlifting products if necessary. So we're beginning to see how companies are making plans to sort of go about doing business and working around this disruption. Oh, gosh, it sucks to be European, doesn't it? I mean, you know, in America, we make our own beef, pork, and we have our own oil, and we have our own products. So we don't have to wait for diddly squat kind of sucks when you're dependent on one little canal to be able to eat, drink, and drive your car. I, I'm just saying.
Of course, oil is very important. One million barrels a day of oil that actually passed through the Suez Canal. And uh, right now, a little bit of upside for WTI, but it was under pressure today in the U.S. session. Why? That's right. We've been seeing so much volatility this week, swings of about 6% in both directions. Today, oil, like you said, did drop. It was pushed lower by a stronger dollar. And of course, just those underlying concerns among investors about weaker demand in Europe, rising COVID cases in the U.S. and other parts of the world. So that's really just dragging down a recovery in crude consumption. (laughs) I also want to point out that Traders are just continuing to watch the situation in the Suez Canal. And aside from headline futures prices, we're seeing um, shipping rates go up so much. Uh, some of the world's largest container uh, carriers are considering sending ships around Africa, even though it's much more costly. And just to put that into perspective for you, rerouting around South Africa could cause fuel costs to rise an extra $300,000 for a super tanker delivering Middle East oil to Europe. To Europe. Welcome to Union. Well, it's a good thing that, you know, we haven't been able to get strangulated thanks to President Trump. Hold on. There's more new stuff that I have on this clip for you guys, which was fun to watch. Where is it? Don't tell me it's not on here. I'll be very upset. I could have sworn I added it on during my call. Hmm. I'll find it. So, because that's that clip in this one. So, here is what they tell you as to why planes won't fly over the Pacific Ocean. I want you to listen to this. But I noticed something strange while booking my Asian getaway. My plane seems to be making a detour over Alaska. Why is my plane going out of its way to avoid the Pacific Ocean? Is this a mistake? Did I accidentally sign up for the caribou route? At first, you might think this was a safety issue. The Pacific is the largest and deepest of the world's oceans. If a plane encounters a problem over a seemingly endless and bottomless pond of water, the pilots are going to have a rough time finding a safe spot to set her down. Alaska might not be overpopulated with international airports, but it's a lot better than the middle of the ocean. How's that for a tourism slogan? Alaska. At least it's better than sinking. Okay, I apologize, Alaska. Guessing that it was a safety precaution wouldn't be entirely wrong. When planning a route, many pilots prefer to maximize the number of airports along their path. Emergencies are incredibly rare relative to how many planes take to the skies every day. But I can't think of many things more stressful than losing an engine 30,000 feet over the middle of the Pacific Ocean. That said, it isn't the main reason airlines tend to avoid making a straight shot east to west. Ultimately, it comes down to saving fuel and time. It's easy to forget that an airline is a business. A business whose profits depend on how quickly and cheaply it can move passengers between destinations. People also prefer to get to their next stop as quickly as possible. So it's a win-win for both airlines and passengers. Long story short, which is not my forte, speed is usually the primary factor in determining a plane's flight path. Excluding special circumstances such as passing through the jet streams or other meteorological concerns, the fastest route is almost always the one closest to a straight line. But wait, just look at that flight path. It's anything but a straight line. Well, yeah, when you look at it on a flat map. But our planet isn't flat now, is it? It can be confusing since we're used to looking at our world on a two-dimensional plane. Unless you bust out a globe each time you need to check where some city or country is located, 
you probably look at a world map. So, on a 2D map, making a giant rainbow to avoid the Pacific Ocean looks like a much longer route. But since the Earth is a sphere, eh, more or less, but more on that later, a straight line is going to look very different in three-dimensional spaces. Okay, let's do a little experiment. Got a globe nearby? Oh yeah, I just said most of us use Google Maps. Alright, here. I'll show you on mine. I put one end of a string on Los Angeles and the other end on Tokyo. When I pull it tight, you'll notice that the string isn't running exactly parallel to the lines of latitude printed on the globe. Instead, it'll bend slightly upwards as it follows the curvature of this mini-Earth I got at the bookstore down the road. This effect is even more pronounced in practice because my globe isn't a perfect recreation of the real deal. In fact, the problem is that it's too perfect. You see, unlike a globe, the Earth isn't a perfect sphere. Our planet is slightly bigger around the middle, kind of like me after the holidays. Wait, who wrote that? Hmm. When looking at pictures taken from outer space, the difference isn't enough to notice. The planet is so big that it's easy to lose track of a few hundred miles here and there. But check it out! If you could take a giant string and measure the Earth's circumference through the poles, you'd need 24,860 miles of string. But if you do the same at the equator, it would jump to 24,900 miles. Why is that, you ask? Well, it's because our planet rotates on its axis. Ever spin yourself really fast on the playground merry-go-round when you were a kid? Remember feeling like the thing was going to throw you out to the sides? Actually, I remember I was throwing up a lot. Not a good ride for me. Anyway, something similar happens to the Earth's midsection as it spins. The force causes it to bulge out. Yes, it's spinning fast enough to do that. Anybody tuning in from the equator right now, you're currently moving about a thousand miles per hour. That 40-mile difference in the Earth's width might not seem like very much, but when it comes to the surface area of an entire planet, that little bit of added girth can go a long way. The combination of these two factors, the curvature of the Earth and its extra equatorial width ooh, I like that, mean that curving toward the poles is a shorter distance than flying, what seems like on a map, straight across. None of this is to say that planes never cross the Pacific Ocean. People have to get to Australia somehow, I guess. I'm not so much into giant insects and spiders, but hey, to each his own. Just kidding, Australia. Anyway, planes will also venture over open water to avoid storms. While aircraft can outclimb some types of severe weather, such as hurricanes and tropical storms, seemingly mundane thunderstorms are surprisingly challenging. With clouds reaching altitudes of over 60,000 feet, airplanes are advised to steer around instead of into or over them. It's almost unheard of for modern aircraft to be brought down by severe weather. But bad enough turbulence can cause injuries to passengers and crew if they, and all the stuff they've packed with them, get tossed around the cabin. The takeaway here is keep your seatbelts fastened at all times. Another reason planes will sometimes brave an oceanic voyage is to take advantage of the smoother ride. Even in clear weather, there's much less turbulence over water than over land. This is because the primary source of turbulence is hot air rising up from the ground. Hey, there's a lot of hot air rising up from this microphone. Water distributes heat a lot better than soil, so flights over the ocean are often much smoother. The other primary consideration for determining flight paths are air currents, namely the jet streams. 
these high-altitude air currents exist near the top of the troposphere. That's the lowest layer of the Earth's atmosphere, and the one where most weather occurs. The border between the troposphere and the next layer up, the stratosphere, is known as the tropopause. Its altitude fluctuates between 4 and 12 miles above the Earth's surface. This fluctuation results in rapid shifts in air temperature and pressure, which creates a wind tunnel that can reach speeds of over 200 miles per hour. These extreme speeds are most common in winter, when the temperature difference is greatest, but regular wind speeds of 80 to 140 miles per hour are nothing to scoff at, so keep your scoffing to yourself. There are four main jet streams, two in each hemisphere, and thanks to the Earth's rotation, they mostly flow west to east. The two most important for air travel are the polar jet stream, which forms near the Arctic Circle, and the subtropical jet stream near the equator. Both are thousands of miles long despite being only a few miles wide. Flying with a jet stream can shave several hours off of a trip, but flying into it can slow the plane down considerably. It's also worth noting the risks associated with jet streams. The biggest hazard is a kind of turbulence known as clear air turbulence, which occurs along the edges of the streams. This kind of turbulence is nearly impossible to predict and far more intense than the usual variety. Turbulence-related accidents are rare, but they are possible. One particular serious incident happened in 1997, when a plane flying from Tokyo to Honolulu suddenly dropped after hitting a patch of clear air turbulence. The pilots were able to regain control, but many passengers had been thrown from their seats really hard by the sudden descent. With that danger in mind, Flight plans need to be carefully calculated to take advantage of the jet streams without putting the plane at risk. Repeat after me. Keep your seatbelts on at all. All right. So we talked about water. We talked about the water walls. Now we talked about why planes don't fly over the Pacific, right? And we talked about the Suez Canal. We also talked about Cape Cod. Uh, Cape, Cape Cod. <laughs> Cape. <laughs> Let's just say we talked about the southernmost tips of South America and Africa. And, you know, obviously it's really dangerous in South America because it's the merging of the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific, but it's not so dangerous in Africa, apparently, because it's the Cape of Hope, not the Cape of Storms, like it was originally coined, even though we have the Indian Atlantic and Antarctic joining you know and they forget the antarctic ocean down there in, in south america it's like they completely excluded it even though they can see penguins from their window so <laughs> it's like okay fair enough so now so now to close this weekend this week's show what we see is that Africa is playing a very key role. And what we see is that there's a lot of things that happen unexpectedly uh, to our global allies uh, in respects to trade. Um, and, you know, it was two weeks ago when we were joking about on air saying, oh, look, the Japanese are going to send their ship to help. They're going to send ships to help us from China. But it happened to be a Japanese owner of the ship that was like, oops, sorry, my bad. Totally like <laughs> blocked all of the trade needed from China to Europe. Sorry, Europe. 
damn it. Maybe you need to get more oil from Russia or the United States. Oh, wait, Biden said we're not allowed to do that anymore. Hmm. You see how that works? And now it's like the easiest thing to do is to dump the cargo and um, just um, try to move it with no cargo. That's like, you know, how much is it? It's like 225,000 tons. Well, I guess if you remove all of that, maybe it's going to be easier, you know, to kind of maneuver the stuck boat that, oops, my bad, you know, said the Japanese guy when the Japanese were sending help. That's um, quite interesting. Here's what the Germans said. This was interesting. This is what I wanted to show you. The German reporting. Here we go. Wait. We are reporting that the owner of a huge container ship blocking Egypt's Suez Canal aims to free it by Saturday. But experts are warning that it could take weeks. More than 150 ships are waiting to get into what is one of the world's most important shipping routes, with hundreds more headed its way. A prolonged suspension of traffic in the sewers will almost certainly impact global trade, which has already been hit hard by the pandemic. The Suez Canal is a choke point for world trade. It connects Asia and Europe and sees 30% of the global container shipping volume every day. Dredging teams worked through the night to try to clear the canal bed around the 200,000 tonne ship. And no wonder, the stranded Ever Given is holding up around $10 billion in trade every day it is stuck. Diggers, tugboats, dredgers and a crack team of Dutchmen known as the Special Forces of Salvage Operations have been drafted in to help. It's thought containers may have to be offloaded to lighten the vessel, though one mistake could spell disaster. The bow is basically in Asia, the stern's in, in, in Africa, and the middle is, is in the middle of the canal. And what you can't do is take a lot of weight off the ends and put a lot of what they call a, a sagging stress on the vessel. You conceivably crack the hull, cause an oil spill, but worse, catastrophically fracture the vessel in half, which would close the canal for months, if not years. We can't take off the cargo because while you're taking it off, it's going to crack in half. It's all, we can't do that. And then there's jurisdiction. One's in Africa, one's in Asia. So let's just keep the cargo on there. Because if you start taking boxes off simultaneously from all front, middle, and back, we still can't solve that problem. So, you know, if that happens, you know, it can cause damage for years. So it's better not to unload the cargo. <laughs> More than 150 ships are caught in the traffic jam. Each passing day piles on the pressure for global trade routes, already struggling with the coronavirus pandemic. A hiccup like this sort of sets everyone back everyone was already scrambling to get back to normal and serve what has been quite strong demand for traded goods. And yeah, no one needs another delay on, on top of everything else. And, and it does underline just how important and how finely balanced the whole system is. I know it's finely balanced. See, like when you're in the, in the dock and they unload things, they simultaneously unload them. So the ship doesn't crack in half. Right now, we can't bother the cargo. We just have to figure out how to get it out while we're spending time to find out who the heck 
took over the ship and did this. Japanese said, oh, so sorry. I, I didn't, I don't know. It just blackout and it's stuck in the thinnest part of the Suez. It's just a coincidence, right? So what do you do? Do you not take off the cargo and say, if you take it out, then we're going to have an oil spill. Idea. While we take off the cargo, let's destroy the ship. So no one looks at the cargo and everyone looks at the damage that happens in the Suez Canal and let's all decide no more ships. And don't look at the cargo. Look at what's spilling here. But wait, there's going to be people watching the cargo. Yeah, so maybe we can control the area. Let's bring in people and reinforce it. In the meantime, let's try to dig this out with all the cargo because we want to avoid the distraction we need to cause when we're unloading the cargo. So let's get a move on it. Those involved have warned it could be weeks before the vessel is freed. Bad news for those stuck in the world's longest maritime tailback. And with us to look at the impact the accident is having on shipping is Lars Jensen. He's the CEO of Sea Intelligence Consulting, which advises the industry. He's joining us from Copenhagen. G'day, Lars. How big a deal is this for the world's cargo companies? This is becoming a bigger deal for every day that passes. Uh, a couple of days, that would have been a minor annoyance. But what we are seeing now is going to have uh, ripple effects on all the container shipping flows. This is significantly increasing the risk we are going to see congestion in European ports within a week's time or so, and it significantly increases the risk that there will be a shortage of actual containers in Asia impacting European and North American and all other importers a couple of months from now. There are scores of ships, as you talked about it, uh, stacked on either end of the canal and they aren't going anywhere. Do they have alternative routes? Yes, the alternative is the long way around Africa. Uh, that in very round numbers is another 5,000 kilometers, takes a week longer, burns between 500 and 1,000 tons of fuel per ship. So it's expensive. It takes a long time. However, oh, not only is it theoretically possible, it is actually happening already. As of the last 12 hours, we are now seeing multiple container ships that have been diverted and is now beginning to take the long route. Now, let me fact check something. Can a gust of wind really blow such a massive ship sideways <laughs> as the gust owner of, wind. of the ships says it did in this case? It's like the space dust bunnies, right? <laughs> gust of wind just took a 225,000 ton cargo ship. and. <laughs> Theoretically speaking, yes. It's like setting a gigantic <laughs> sail. That's a, that's a huge force. Uh, what has me wondering a bit here is if it is you just a gust of wind. Well, there's wind a lot of times in the Suez Canal. We got 20,000 ships a year moving through. So if it is only wind, then we should see this happen more frequently. We don't. It more okay. is more Thank likely you. that Thank it's you. a confluence of multiple different factors. Wind might very likely be one of them, but it's unlikely to be the only reason. Lars, the industry has been enormously profitable in recent years, also as ships have gotten bigger and bigger and crews have become smaller. Was this, in that view, an accident waiting to happen? No. Uh, you've had the giant ships, let's put it that way, move through the Suez Canal for many, many years. Before it was the container ships, you also have very large tankers and other types of vessels. So while ships, especially on the container side, definitely have gotten larger over the last couple of decades... I don't see that as a contributing factor in itself. Lars Jensen of Sea Intelligence Consulting, Ooh, thanks so much. That was so good.
My like question. he was trying to keep a straight face. Yeah, it's totally plausible. But it's, uh, it's, <laughs> it's <laughs> so okay. I just can't. I can't. Okay, and then let's just um, see this report that I haven't seen in a lot of places, but apparently. Iran has launched a missile attack while we've been watching a, a, a rocket on an Israeli ship in the Arabian Sea. And um, I haven't seen this reported much. Hi, this is Paul from Off Grid Desert Farming with Paul and Adrian. We've got some breaking news coming in. It looks like Iran has just uh, launched a missile at one of Israeli uh, ships in the Arabian Sea. Israel threatens uh, uh, retaliation, harsh retaliation. So uh, let's go ahead and uh, look at this article. This has just happened today. Um, Iran fired another missile at an Israeli cargo ship in the Arabian Sea. According to an Israeli media report, the ship was hit by a rocket fired by the Iranian guards. We remind you that Iran also has hit an Israeli cargo ship in the Gulf of Oman. Uh, the Israeli, what the Israeli media reporting uh, it is the cargo ship lorry that was traveling from Tanzania to India and was hit in the Arabian Sea. The Israelis released photos of the holes uh, the ship acquired. Despite the damage, the ship continued to the nearest port. Israeli sources say this is another blow as part of Iran's campaign against Israeli ships. The damage of the ship will be assessed as soon as it anchors in the Indian port. Fortunately, no one was injured. So uh, let's go ahead. And this is uh, breaking news uh, from Israel. Uh, Israel owned ship damaged. Uh, we'll keep on going down. Breaking news from uh, from Israel. Okay. So I just want to say, I mean, thank you, Japan, for sending your ships to help. And, you know, it kind of sucks when you rely on AI to drive everything from planes, trains, automobiles, except, right, and ships. Lots of different types of ships, but it kind of sucks sometimes because yesterday I was almost driven off the road by two vehicles that flanked my car on both sides. And I was testing the Tesla's auto drive feature where, you know, it drives you right. And it saved our lives because, you know, it was it was nudging and I was like, oh, maybe it's correcting itself. There's a little bit of a bend. And, you know, I didn't even see, like, you know, I'm in the inner lane. There's a wall separating to the other side of the interstate traffic, right? I was on the 90 going west. So there's like a small space that where you could barely fit a car on the shoulder on the inner side and a car comes speeding down. And I'm saying it was 100 because I wanted to catch up and I didn't even realize I was going a hundred. That's how fast they were probably going way faster. Cause I couldn't even catch up. I like sped up to get their license plate. So one came in from the left, the other one came in from the right. And it was like, they're trying to squeeze. And it's a good thing that I was on the Tesla auto thing because I didn't even, I didn't even see the vehicle come. That's how fast it was. And all I heard was the grating of the shoulder and I turned my head. By the time I did, I was looking at the passenger seat of that car turning onto my car. And then at the same moment, my daughter's looking out of her side and there's a truck coming into on that side. And then I'm, my hands are on the wheel cause you don't let go. And I'm like, I need to gain control. And you know, the car just kind of did this maneuver where it like slowed down back. I don't know what it did. Thanks, Elon, because, you know, in the end, the Audi came in front of me and then the 
truck came behind it. It was like a mini truck and they both sped off and I tried to follow them. So I like sped up. I took, I, you know, I had taken off the auto drive at that point and I sped up. I didn't even realize how fast I was going. Cause it's like, it's crazy, right? Maybe they're doing 80, you know, it was kind of dead there. Dude, next thing I'm just pressing the pedal to go forward. And I see one Oh seven on my dash. I'm like, shit, I better fall back. And I'll just call the cops and tell them. So imagine I had gone that fast because you can't feel the speed in the Tesla. That's the problem. But, you know, when I realized it within seconds, right, I was like, let me let me hang back. Holy crap. They're going really fast. And it was scary. Um, but I was, uh, you know, thanks, Elon. That was that was crazy. Um, you know, I you know, I've learned defensive driving in Fort Huachuca. So that's what's up. <laughs> but it was like so bizarre how it happened and how AI actually saved us. I don't know what it did because I, I remembered that I was holding the steering wheel and it was acting funny. And I was like, oh, I looked for the color where it's like touch the steering wheel so we could check that you're touching it. Cause you know, if you touch it too lightly, it wants you to have your hands on the wheel, even though it's driving for you. Um, but it wasn't blue. And I was like, what is it doing? I just, you know, in, in my mind, I was like, oh, maybe it's turning. I didn't know that it was trying to maneuver away from whatever was coming up from my left and my right. So it was doing it itself. So, um, you know, and I was only going about 60 miles an hour. I, it goes the limit. It doesn't go over. I mean, you could program it to go over, but I was only going the speed limit. Um, and it was doing it itself. So, um, you know, <laughs> AI saved there. But on the other hand, on that ship, it looks like AI went a little bit crazy. Like it took control of the ship early on in the Suez Canal. And then it was like, oh, you're okay. Don't worry about it. And then in the most narrow part of the canal, you know, AI just went wonky again, you know, and, you know, kind of drew a really weird path in the canal. And then as it went crazy, it stopped when it was stuck. And it's like, what, what kind of AI would get a whole ship stuck? I, I mean, it's so bizarre, right? You know, I'm pretty sure that at the time that that was happening at the Suez Canal with that, you know, ship and the AI going nuts, I can almost imagine, like in my mind, that the airspace was probably clear too. I mean, this is just a hypothesis, but it would seem that it would almost be clear at that point in that area, kind of like um, how it was clear over certain areas of Iraq when other planes went a little bit sideways, you know, Ukrainian ones that blew up or disappeared, you know, it just so happens that there's pockets of rerouting ships around a certain area and ships, I meant airships, uh, planes. So, you know, that would be kind of interesting to, I don't know, see anybody deal with planes and can find the exact time that, you know, that nice Johnson was drawn as a path and got stuck. I would almost guarantee that I would almost be very sure that for some reason at a radius around that area, there would be no aircraft flying. You know, maybe the planes just took another route kind of like the route we saw of a no-go zone in Iraq when all that stuff happened, you know, in it on. And then that Ukrainian plane just 
was it exploded? No, I don't know. And then that other plane disappeared. You remember. I mean, these are just coincidences, of course, right? <laughs> of course. But I'm just thinking that if someone actually looked at the traffic patterns of air travel during the time of uh, the ship just um, being blown around in the shape of a Johnson, um, there may be no aircraft either. Kind of interesting how the European economy is now crippled and um, they're not self-sufficient and they have to pay a lot of money and gas is going up, food is going to go up, all these goods. And it's so incredible because they're stuck between a rock and a hard place right now. Do you wait and dig the boat out and create a bigger canal? Or do you take the risk of removing the cargo, which can break the, 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 the ship in half? Because it only happens if you're in the water, not if you're in the water by the port. That's the only time it'll really break in half is if you're in the water without a port and you remove cargo. If you're in the water with a port nearby where it's controlled and there's, you know, trucks and stuff and cranes on a port, you're not going to crack in half. But if you're in the water without a port, uh, you know, you're going to crack in half. You see, so we can't take the cargo off because then that would ruin the whole Suez Canal. And then everyone's going to have to be reporting about oil spillage in the Suez Canal while we're removing cargo. So nobody's looking at the cargo. I mean, this is just hypothetical speculating, of course. So on that note, guys, we're going to be doing movie night on Sunday. We may have a broadcast tomorrow if um, if certain things occur. How's that? And um, it'll be quite interesting to see. Um, but no matter how bleak it looks, uh, one thing you need to remember is that, um, our God is so amazing that there is nothing he cannot accomplish because everything is accomplished with him. So please keep that in mind when you're feeling pessimistic, pessimistic, did I say press? mystic. Keep that in mind and continue praying. God bless. Well, you almost had me fooled. Told me that I was nothing without you Oh, and after everything you've done I can thank you for how strong I have become Cause you brought the flames and you put me through hell I had to learn how to fight for myself and we both know all the truth I could tell I'll just say this is I wish you farewell I hope you're somewhere pretty